Coming up on Stu Does America, Blaze TV's Steve Dace is in studio to talk about what the future of conservatism looks like with Donald Trump out of office. And Alex Epstein from the Center for Industrial Progress has some thoughts on Joe Biden's climate change executive orders. We'll hear from him. That's a mess, man. Uh, you can catch all of our episodes completely free on YouTube, Facebook, podcast, and more. Just head to stewdoesamerica.com for all the links and give us a review on iTunes. Five stars is the appropriate number of stars. Plus, help us take a stand against conservative censorship with a Blaze TV account. Just go to blazetv.com slash stew and enter the promo code stew because that's how they know you like this stupid show and you'll save 30 bucks for a limited time. It's a well-known fact that everything on this planet is racist, everything. But you know what else is racist? Everything in our imaginations as well. Mm -hmm. It's all bigotry all the time, as we do imaginary racism. Stu does America. Here is a little handy dandy news flash for you. Racism is real. Mm -hmm. It's a real thing. Some idiots actually care about skin color. Like it has any value whatsoever. Those people are stupid. Are you one of those people? If so, you are stupid. Congratulations. I'm talking to you, Ibram X. Kendi. <laughs> you are stupid. Anyway, actual racism is a horrible enemy. And where it actually exists, it should be rooted out and destroyed. But racism has turned into something new. For a huge chunk of the American people, racism has become their new operating system. It's all they can see all the time. Whenever they see any problem, real or imagined, they blame racism. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. It's a tweet from Ahmed Ali. Now, who is Ahmed Ali? No, seriously, I'm asking, who is Ahmed Ali? I don't, know, I don't know who he is. But we may never know the answer to that question. We can see, however, Ahmed Ali tweeting this writ of brilliance. Funny how people can separate Tom Brady's politics from his game, but struggle to do the same when it comes to Kaepernick. Really? Is it funny how people can't separate them? Is it? First of all, Tom Brady barely ever talks about politics. He had a MAGA hat in his locker in like 2016. It's the extent of his politics. Kaepernick couldn't be bothered to interrupt his activism with football. It's the only reason you know who he is. And there's a reason for that. He sucks at playing football. If you're interested in why I say that, go back and check out my episode, Stu Does, Colin Kaepernick, where I tell you in excruciating detail how horrible he was as an NFL player. Not mediocre, horrible. But one thing you might recognize is that Tom Brady is about to play in his 10th Super Bowl. 10th. Brady has won more games in the playoffs than Kaepernick has won in his entire career, including the regular season and the playoffs. And if that's not bad enough, the worst part of all this is that I am doing a monologue where I am defending Tom Brady. I hate Tom Brady, but he is the best quarterback in the history of the freaking league. This guy could probably open up a business where people buy tickets to kick innocent puppies, where all of the proceeds went directly to Nickelback, and he'd still be popular and keep his job. To summarize, Tom Brady good, Colin Kaepernick bad. That's why Tom Brady is playing in the Super Bowl and Colin Kaepernick is tweeting. By the way, remember 
That time that Tom Brady tweeted, when civility leads to death, revolting is the only logical reaction. The cries for peace will rain down, and when they do, they will land on deaf ears because your violence has brought this resistance. Wait, no, you don't remember that? Maybe because it was Colin Kaepernick who tweeted that mess. When civility leads to death, revolting is the only logical reaction. The cries for peace will rain down, and when they do, they will land on deaf ears. Think about what he just said. The cries for peace will rain down, and they will land on deaf ears. Because your violence has brought this resistance. We have the right to fight back. Rest in power, George Floyd. This is just an all-out justification and personal request for people to rise up in a violent way. Still up on Twitter, though. <laughs> no insurrection there whatsoever. <sighs> So after this incredibly dumb point was made over and over again, Tommy Lahren of Fox News tweeted this. So Kaepernick is, trend is trending because Tom Brady, a skilled quarterback, hasn't been canceled due to his friendship with Donald Trump. Yep, makes sense. Liberalism is a disease. Here's a wild guess. If Tom Brady suddenly started sucking at football and was benched for a better starting QB, chances are he wouldn't cry racism, wouldn't kneel for the flag and anthem and pass it off as a social justice moment. All of this is inarguably true, but that didn't stop stories like this. There were several people that saw Laren's tweet and responded with strong comments. That is, I gotta stop there. That is a totally meaningless sentence. It, it, what do you mean there were, Twitter, there were several people who responded with strong comments? That is literally true about every single thing. Why would you put that in a news story? totally separate issue. There are several people who responded with strong comments. Several disagreed with her assessment that Kaepernick was not a good quarterback. They said that the former San Francisco 49ers quarterback had lost his job only after he kneeled. No, he did not. Colin Kaepernick lost his job to Blaine Gabbard before he took a knee. He lost his job to Blaine Gabbert before the knee. If you remember nothing else from the entire history of this stupid show and the entire future of the entire conservative net movement, the Blaze TV, everything you'll ever watch in your life, remember this. Colin Kaepernick lost his job to Blaine Gabbert before he took a knee. Remember that. But this is just one of many, many, many stories of imagined racism today. Here's sometimes sane Stephen A. Smith. Adam Schefter reported this is the most unattractive job, that there are a bevy of individuals that didn't even want the job. Oh, In all likelihood, even an Eric Bieniemy did not want that job. You have to take that into consideration. And now we hear the news of David Cully, a guy that's 65 years of age, getting a job for the first time as a head coach in the National Football League. He's been associated with the National Football League for 27 years. <laughs> I'm very, very happy for him. Very happy for him. Very happy that a black man got a head coaching job opportunity. But the flip side to that is that he's never been an offensive coordinator. He's never been a defensive coordinator. And to put him in that position, essentially what you did was you set him up to fail because oh. you've alienated the star quarterback. 
clearly the organization is going to be moving in a different direction because there's nothing but mayhem and everything else going on there right now. Uh, you bring him in. Um, you've set him up to fail because I don't see any way how he can succeed in the immediate future. And that's usually the kind of job a black man gets. Oh, and God. unfortunately, that's the situation here with Houston. But I'm still happy for him. Oh, okay. And I'm happy that Deshaun Watson decided to make his feelings official in that regard. Uh, as I said, sometimes seen. So you got all that? Even when you hire a black coach, you only did it because you were racist and wanted him to fail. You wanted your multi-billion dollar franchise to fail, so you gave the job that you know is crap to a black man so a black man would fail. You gave the black man the crappy head coaching job in the National freaking Football League because you wanted him to fail. Well, I have news for you. You don't hire a new coach if you just went 12 and 4. You hire a new coach to come into a failing situation. That's why you do it. So all these jobs suck on some level, but come on. This is a league where over 70% of players who hold the most sought-after jobs are black in a country that is over 70% white. A league that goes to commercial and assaults you with nonstop BLM propaganda. A league that literally put the words end racism in all of their end zones this year. A league that made the top story on their website following a playoff weekend a poem about what it's like to be a black man. The NFL is not a good target for your claims of racism. Of course, at the same time, this is totally okay. This is a tweet about the new Philadelphia Eagles coaching staff. Head coach Nick Sirianni and his coaching staff is pictured here. There are four white guys. Uh-oh. How was this covered? Here's the headline. Everyone is clowning the Eagles because their new coaching staff all looks exactly the same. <laughs> you see, all of these white people look the same. Isn't that funny? White people look alike. Do you think this story is written if the coaches were black? I, I kind of doubt it. Don't you? One of the easiest ways to tell if you're being a racist or not is to change the color you're talking about and say it out loud. How does it sound? How does it feel to say it? And let us not forget, of course, Kurt Schilling. As a fan of America's team, the Toronto Blue Jays, I don't like the Red Sox either. But Schilling put together an amazing career that is clearly worthy of the Hall of Fame. But he's seen as a conservative. He's seen as a guy that says offensive things. Mind you, his recent problematic tweet about the Capitol riots sounded an awful lot like what Kaepernick tweeted about the BLM riots, but Kaepernick gets adulation and they're erasing Schilling's history as a player. While we're here, the Capitol riots. Remember the talking point that day that was so powerful and so insightful. Here's Van Jones to give you his version. Usually you're going to see city buses lined up from here to, to for three miles to be you to see plastic handcuffs mm-hmm. of, of protesters, quote unquote protesters doing anything. And they get thrown to the ground oh. um, or sometimes peacefully arrested. But they all nobody leaves on foot. Everybody leaves with their little hands and plastic handcuffs in the back of big city buses heading off to jail. That's the price of a protest. If you're black, if oh. you're a progressive, the price of protesting, uh, I mean, I don't mean a riot. I just mean, a, you know, civil disobedience. 
uh, just sitting down on the steps and they tell you to get up and you don't get up. The price of that is you go to jail for it at night. Everybody knows that in yeah. D.C. Uh, everybody knows it. By the way, this is just kind of just bad luck for Van Jones. But right in the middle of him telling us all about the white people storming the Capitol. <laughs> <laughs> Dead center in the footage. Uh, uh, not a white guy. Uh, I, that's, that's just terrible luck for Van Jones, and I, I, I feel for him. This is a horrible point by Van Jones, of course, but it is one that everyone made. What would have happened if those rioters would have been black? Well, I saw a lot of targets burned to the ground and looted without a cop to be seen for hours. And of course, in Minneapolis, the police literally evacuated their own precinct to allow rioters to light it on fire. Well, let's entertain this for just a second. What did happen when the rioters were white? Well, one of them got shot and killed. At least 150 people were arrested. Some will be charged with sedition. There have been 500 grand jury subpoenas issued on what the prosecutor called a, quote, sweeping, unparalleled investigation. Oh, yeah. And the president of the United States was impeached and is going to trial in the Senate. A national terrorism alert was given out just yesterday and 20 thousand National Guard troops were installed to guard the area with 5,000 of them staying until mid freaking March. And now they're erecting permanent barriers around the entire complex. That's what happened when white people did this. And by the way, I'm fine with a lot of that. But this stupid, stupid point made by so many stupid, 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 stupid people is just stupid. Stop letting race control your life. Nobody cares about your skin color. It is a meaningless, immutable physical characteristic. Your skin color means nothing. I don't care about it. No one around you cares about it. And you shouldn't care about it either. Racism is real. It's collectivist poison and should be avoided by any thinking human being. But substituting in some forced racial explanation for every single issue in our society isn't insightful. It's imaginary. Trying to buy or sell a home in these times can be challenging, especially with almost every neighborhood constantly on fire. That's why you need a real estate agent who is going to come in and take charge, maybe put some fires out, but also the type of fires that you're usually dealing with when you're trying to sell your home. Uh, maybe your house needs to be painted last minute. You need to replace the stairs. Maybe you're going through the sale. And, you know, this happened to me once where the person who was buying the house came up with these all these last minute requests. Can you fix this? Can you fix this? Can you fix this? Ugh, all right, fine. How do you get that done? You need someone who knows the area, who has good connections, good people to help you out and do the, do the work because obviously if I try to do it, it's a total disaster. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the best place to go to find that person. Why? Because they've already gone through a screening process for performance, for their knowledge of the area, for their knowledge of the business, and for their, you know, getting the best price for their, for their clients. Realestateagentsitrust.com is the place to go to get more information. Do it now. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Realestateagentsitrust.com. Trust.com. Happy to welcome back to the program Alex Epstein. He's the president and founder of the Center for Industrial Progress and the author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels, which is a great book. Alex, thanks for coming back on the program. Hey, good to be here, Stu. Uh, Alex, take us to 50,000 feet. 
And looking down at this first couple weeks of the Obama, or excuse me, <laughs> that's a Freudian, I suppose. The Biden, I wish. <laughs> no, <laughs> the Biden administration and his views on climate. I mean, we went through climate day. What does this look like? Yeah, I mean, the way I think of it is imagine that you're an investor and somebody says, hey, I've got this great energy company to pitch to you. And you say, OK, I'll listen to it. And then they say, here's the CEO. And then it's it's Joe Biden. Like he walks in the room <laughs> and you think, OK, this doesn't look very promising. Like, do you have any background in energy? No. Do you have any background in business? No. And you're like, all right, well, you must have a hell of an idea. Mm. And he says, yeah, I can outcompete fossil fuels and I'm going to do it by using mostly solar and wind. And you're like, well, how's that working out around the world? And he says, well, honestly, not very well. Like, I want to use 90%. And even when they're trying to use 20 or 30%, they're having all kinds of problems. Like, Germany's electricity prices are three times ours. They're talking about cutting off EVs in Germany. In Britain, people are freezing to death more often. They're burning books to stay warm. Uh, people are riding in buses all day and going in libraries all day just to stay warm. I mean, it's really a problem. Of course, California is having blackouts. And you're like, wait a second. So you don't know anything about business or energy. And you're advocating schemes that have failed a lot consistently, and that's your plan. And so to me, like how much worse is it if that guy is going to control every energy business? And so basically it's like somebody knows nothing about business and is taking the most crackpot idea and then wants to dictatorially impose it on every business in America. That's that's how I see what he's doing. Because that is that's a scary picture you're painting. And, you know, we all know that the left has been trying to kind of do this solar wind thing for a long time. Um, this is something they've kind of been on their wish list for 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 you know years and years and years. What is Biden doing that is that makes this a reality? Well, I think it's important that, as I, as I indicated, it is a reality, like it's a reality that's failing around the world. These green energy schemes are failing around the world on a small scale. By the nature of solar and wind, as I talk about, they're very unreliable. So they don't replace reliable energy. They just really duplicate reliable energy. That's why they add costs. And then when you try to shut down the reliable power plants, you have what happens in California, which is not only do your costs go up, but your reliability goes down. You have blackouts. This is a failure around the world. Uh, but they've had a very big cultural and rhetorical success where they've portrayed green energy as a success. And so then they've convinced people that we have a climate catastrophe and that we don't need to actually use nuclear, like we can't allow that, even though that's the only scalable form of at least reliable electricity, we basically just need to use solar and wind. So they, they're in a rhetorical position. And then it's this combination of that and then just a huge amount of power right now. And maybe one, one other perspective on it that I think is important is like, why, it just step back, why are we so focused on net zero? Like, why is that our only goal? Like, no economist has ever said this is possible. There's no any evidence to think it's possible. It really comes from the climate catastrophe movement, which says that our overriding priority in life should be ha to have no impact on the planet, including no impact on the climate. And so I think it's important that this is really a religious movement that's saying the goal is to have no impact. It's an unimpacted planet. And so you're combining this green religion with fascism. And that is the proper term to describe uh, phony ownership, but total government control. So if you take like political fascism plus green religion, that equals genocide. Jeez. Mm, oh, I mean, because if you take you can't do this by just saying, you know, green energy is great and throwing money and lots of regulations at it. You have to do the other side, too, where you're going to try to harm the fossil fuel industry. 
it seems like they're doing that with the, the Keystone pipeline, some of these drilling lease issues that they're doing. What are they doing to, to hurt uh, the energy production we already have? I think you're right. And I would add, I mean, the main thing that they're doing is they're saying you have to use solar and wind. But if you look at the initial actions, what are they? They're just destroying productive projects. So what has Biden done? Like he's destroyed. I mean, he said, hey, all of you people who are planning on having oil and gas and coal leases, forget that. Mm. I'm destroying that investors, employees, like, you don't matter. I'm killing that because I think we're going to somehow get to this net zero religious uh, goal. And and then he shuts down a pipeline that would have actually reduced emissions. So now you have to take the oil and you have to do it by truck or by train. Uh, so, you know, more of it will be produced in places like Saudi Arabia and Russia. But it shows that really the core of this agenda is destruction. I think what you indicated is that a proper alternative energy agenda would involve liberating all the promising alternatives and let them try to outcompete fossil fuels over time. But really, the only one that has plausibility is nuclear. And that's been criminalized overwhelmingly by uh, Democrats. And there's no agenda at all to decriminalize that. They'll, they'll occasionally make some token statement about it. But it's all about unreliable solar and wind. And so what it shows is the green religion has set the agenda. They've set this goal of net zero, and then they've set the means of using these so-called natural green renewable technologies to get there. And the, But if that religious movement is setting the agenda, even if that stuff, stuff worked, which it doesn't, they wouldn't approve it because solar and wind have a massive impact on the planet. And what you see in practice is the biggest opponents of solar and wind are green NIMBY groups saying solar and wind are bad. So it's really an anti-energy ultimate anti-human movement. And that's what you get when you oppose human impact, which is an essential of human survival. Right. And it's, it ties into you know what we've seen with the anti-population growth crowd over such a long time. It does seem like that's the end game. Like I, all of these things, civilization is here. A giant chunk of it is the use of reliable, cheap energy. And it's seemingly on their list to fight against every step of the way. Joe Biden has, you know, I think is a relatively unremarkable politician um, throughout his career. Uh, John Kerry, on the other hand, who he's bringing in to do this, has been a climate extremist for a very long time. I mean, he's been he's been on the, the cutting edge of this. Uh, Biden has gone to that well. Uh, they they are pushing further than I think I think. The sales pitch was the sales pitch during the campaign was he's the moderate. He's the normal Democrat. He's just the regular guy. Return to normalcy. That's not what we're getting here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's impossible to underestimate. I mean, to overestimate how destructive he is and how whatever he is going on inside his head, which I think is hard to know <laughs> what he has adopted. If you look at his recent climate agenda, and I just read through his official press release and quote statement of fact, which is just basically a statement of fiction and then statement of terrible aspirations. Like this is so be, this is an AOC policy. Like there's nothing in, I don't mm -hmm. think there's anything she's advocated that he doesn't uh, that he doesn't follow. And and it's important, I keep stressing this religious aspect, it comes from this idea, and you mentioned population growth, yeah, that we shouldn't impact the planet. Well, if we shouldn't impact the planet, 
then we shouldn't exist. That is the core idea. And that's why you have a lot of these people saying, yeah, 8 billion people is too much. We need 1 billion. We need to lead a more sustainable life. And if you believe human impact on the planet is wrong, and you that means you believe our whole civilization that keeps us so safe and so healthy, and it gives us so much opportunity, you think that's bad and you don't value it? Of course, you're not going to value the energy that powers the machines that makes our amazing lives possible. So what you have, they call people climate deniers, but really they're energy deniers. They deny the value of energy and they want to deny energy to people. And this is a global agenda. And keep in mind, billions of people are still using virtually no energy. So we have a world where energy has made life amazing for billions of people. Indirectly, it's made life even better for the people who have little energy. And in response to that incredible success, people are saying life is terrible. And so we're going to abolish all the forms of energy that work and then somehow mandate and make work by fascism all the forms that don't. That means you don't care about energy. And we could talk more about Kerry because he doesn't even know anything about uh, climate either, which is interesting. Yeah, well, yeah, take us there for a second because he, he really doesn't. Uh, he he seems to be one of these guys that like reads, he has the understanding to me when I listen to him talk about climate of a person who's read a few New York Times columns, who's, you know, read a few liberal blogs. Um, he's on, uh, you know, some climate alert website, but he doesn't have a, a deep understanding. He seems to be, uh, bringing the, the fusion of a politician and some liberal climate blog. It would be great. You could probably find the clip. He was speaking in Indonesia several years ago, and he gave just this incredibly smug, that's probably not surprising, <laughs> but this statement like explaining, it's like some science is hard, but this is easy. And so it's like, oh, well, the greenhouse effect. Okay, there's like a thin layer of greenhouse gases, like a quarter of an inch or half an inch thick. And that's at the edge of the atmosphere. And that's where, you know, the CO2, and that's protecting our planet at a perfect temperature of 57 degrees. So leaving aside perfect temperature, total nonsense, like mm -hmm. the greenhouse layer is not a quarter inch thick, the, it's five to seven miles thick. And <laughs> if it were at the edge of the atmosphere, then plants would not have plant food because all the CO2 would be at the edge of the atmosphere. Like this is just, I don't know what the hell he's talking about. Maybe he was thinking about the ozone layer, but it's notable that this supposedly scientific movement doesn't care if our number one international representative has a completely bizarre, almost impossible to understand misunderstanding of the key phenomenon that's supposedly causing catastrophe. And it's so when you have if a scientific movement would actually care if people understood science here, nobody explains what the greenhouse effect is. Nobody cares. They just want to be able to print science with a capital uh, on all of their fascist policies that give them control. Yeah, no, it's very true. You know, one of the things I really like talking to you about this stuff, because you, you think about it differently, I think. You know, it's not just a, a normal political back and forth. You're looking at this from a from bigger perspective, I think. Um, and one of the things I get all the time from people who I can talk to and convince that lower taxes are better, or they, they'll see, like, some of the woke stuff going on right now, and, and there's a, the people will pull back from that, people that might be in the middle, not uh, conservatives or libertarians. But when I talk about climate to people, they just see this as like, wait a minute, I love nature. I love the earth. Why would you take an anti-earth perspective? How do you talk to people who have that view? Well, I mean, I think it's it's you take a, a pro 
I mean, you can think of it as like a pro-human friendly earth. So I think of the earth, the, the way it's thought of as I think is the delicate, what I call the delicate nurturer premise. Mm. So this is the view that the earth is a stable, sufficient and safe place. So basically if we don't do anything, if we don't rock the boat, it'll take care of us. It's pretty much a modern garden of Eden. Right. And in reality, the earth is not that, it's wild potential. So it's, it's dynamic, it's deficient and it's dangerous. So it's potential, it's amazing. There's a lot of amazing stuff here. It gives the potential for life, but it does not, it's not conducive to human flourishing unless we radically improve it. And you can think of what we do with energy powering machines is we make the earth a much more livable place. So if you think about like, I wanna visit the Grand Canyon, that's only possible with low cost energy and machines. You're not enjoying the Grand Canyon without, and of course, all these oil products that you use to go there, but without the transportation and freeing up the time that you would otherwise be spending on agriculture and building some unsturdy hut for yourself. So I think right. that people need to recognize that the earth we love is an enhanced earth and it's enhanced by energy. So when you think about, I want a livable planet, you have to factor in, that means I want low cost, reliable energy for billions of people. And I think people have taken for granted, I mean, to say the least, the value of energy, and then they worship nature. So you don't want to be, a, an, I would call it an earth worshiper, you want to be an earth enhancer. That means you love the lovable parts of the earth but you wanna make it better for human beings and you appreciate that overall, human beings have made it a much better place to live. And I think the mark of whether you take, you, you mentioned the way I think, I think the key is I measure the earth by a human flourishing standard. I ask how conducive is today's earth to human flourishing? And it's leaving aside pandemic lockdown, there has never been a planet more conducive to human flourishing. And it's because we've built this high energy civilization on top of the rest of the planet. And the people who say like the Pope on down, who say it's a pile of filth, it's ugly, it's, it's a crisis, they're looking at the earth from an anti-impact perspective. They're saying, Earth is bad if we've impacted. And that's really an anti-human perspective. That's the core issue. Do you look at the Earth from a pro-human perspective or an anti-human perspective? Mm. And it's true. It's like, this is why, of course, uh, life expectancies have gone up so, so much. We've really improved human life, and, and energy is a huge part of that puzzle. Uh, Alex Epstein, uh, president and founder of the Center for Industrial Progress and author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I know a lot of this stuff you go through in this book, which is a must a must own if uh, if uh, you care about this stuff at all. Alex, thanks for so much for coming back on. Hey, great to see you, Stu. All right, back in a second. So Target has joined Costco in dropping uh, the this coconut milk brand over allegations of forced monkey labor. Mm -hmm. Now, when you think about drinking something, I really don't want like monkeys, you know, mixing my milk. Uh, it feels like there's something gross about that. However, uh, that's not what the allegation is. The allegation is that monkeys are being used to go grab the coconuts out of the trees. And you say, okay, that's kind of weird. PETA's all upset about it. And so everyone's dropping this coconut milk. However, like I, First of all, they don't even they claim they're not even it's not even happening. The company is, is audited uh, with a third party their uh, their uh, you know, the places they get the coconuts from. And they say it's not even happening. But like think of if we don't use animals in labor at all, this is what Pete is going for. Right. They want to say, well, you can't use uh, cattle. They, they can't use anything. Um, this is an interesting case. And yet another reason our country is falling apart. Back in a second. 
Joining us now in Texas, in studio, Blaze TV's Steve Dace. He's the host, of course, of the Steve Dace Show right here on Blaze TV. Steve, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Obviously, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel, but I'm happy to be there. For <laughs> hey, hey, this, this show's the bottom of the barrel already, so we're already there. Don't there worry. There we go. About it. Yep. Um, you, uh, when uh, I was thinking about, we, we talked about this a second off the air. Um, you used to do a show on Blaze TV, uh, which when it was CRTV, right? Mm-hmm. Um, with Kurt Schilling. Yeah. Uh, obviously, a Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. I think blatantly obvious. Everyone knows by his performance. I was his heart. He broke my heart as a as America's only Toronto Blue Jays fan many many times over the years, um, and yet he's held out of the Hall of Fame. He he does not get the votes. He comes pretty close actually. Does not get the votes. This is blatantly because they don't like his politics. I, I can't come up with another reason why. And this time he got seventy one percent. You need seventy five percent to make the hall. Uh, other than Roger Clemens, who is in a unique category of he's eligible, but he's not because of PEDs. Right. He's the only non-PED suspect who's eligible for the Hall that has reached the, the 3,000 strikeout king uh, threshold that is not in the Hall of Fame in the entire history of Cooperstown is Kurt Schilling. On top of that, uh, you could say, well, you know, it was a, a statistical anomaly. He hung around forever like Gaylord Perry, who, by the way, is in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And that's how he got his 3,000 strikeouts, or Don Sutton, who's also in the Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. But it's not just that. The biggest moment in the sport is the World Series. And, and this is a guy that, I mean, with the Arizona Diamondbacks, helped lead them to beating the Yankees in the post-9-11 World Series. I, I you know, everyone was cheering for the Yankees yes. that year. I was not. Yeah. <laughs> I hate the Yankees. That was, I mean, that was, I couldn't believe that actually happened. When that, uh, when that base hit fell. Yeah. Uh, and that I couldn't. And I, keep he, in mind, their closer was melting down in that series. So it was yeah. basically Kurt Schilling, Randy Johnson against the entire Yankee oh, wait, roster. Young Young Kim? Yes. Yeah, that's right. And then, in, and then you, of course, the breaking of the Red Sox curse, mm-hmm. uh, the famed bloody sock, which is almost like a scene right out of the natural where he's bleeding through the side of his yeah. jersey and he's bleeding through his sock. I mean, so this guy, it's not just the statistical threshold, but on the biggest stage in the history of the game, uh, particularly with the Red Sox, he's one of the all-time great fall classic performers. There's really just no other reason, especially because of how weak overall this class this year was, yeah. that now you're just making it a point out of spite. I don't want to vote for him. Yeah, I, I think he was in five uh, games where the entire series season was on the line mm-hmm. in the playoffs, and he won all five. He's the only pitcher in mm-hmm. Major League history to do this. Uh, and, and really, his regular season history is good enough to get him into the World Series, uh, let alone all the playoff heroics. Um, they, Some people seem to be really just outwardly saying, we do not want this guy. Uh, some of the writers are saying, we do not want this guy in the Hall of Fame. And it's like, you know, there are people with all sorts of really bad right. things in right. their history that are in the Hall of Fame. Uh, this is our future, though, isn't it? This is this yes. is the future if you're conservative. I, I, and this, this, is, this is unfortunate. And uh, when I was on with you and Glenn the day after the election, and this has been a reoccurring theme that I have been sounding for months, I am concerned that there is a there is a rising tide on the American left that has determined to turn politics into a zero-sum game. Mm. Meaning that we can't even just use the election process to fight de facto civil wars and have 
candidates be the casualties and votes be the bullets. Mm-hmm. And, and then we go on with our lives after this because we've got two, four or six years before the next election. But that everywhere you go now, everything is politicized. And, and, and so all of your baseball exploits, you have the wrong idea of gender. You have the wrong notion of Islamic radicalism. You uh, don't believe in illegal immigration. You like Donald Trump. It doesn't matter. All those 3,000 strikeouts never happened. All those World Series moments, the ones that you just met, the five clinching games, none of those ever happened. We wipe all of that away because we get to, as Orwell put it, we get to unperson you. That is my concern, is that if, the, if, if these elements on the left, Stu, if they persist in making this a zero-sum game, that marches us to a really, as Yoda once said, to a dark place this goes as a culture. I would prefer not to go there. Yeah. You know, I, I kind of like this thing called America. I like going to ball games, taking my kids to the movies. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But, but they, they want to make it, pardon the pun, that there's no safe spaces. Nowhere where we aren't at each other's throats over this. Yeah, and, we're, you know, they, they talk about the January 6th stuff that happened, and, and we've all talked about that a million times. But, you know, they like to forget that a few months earlier, they were telling people when they're out at restaurants, go right. harass them, right. go yell at them, make their lives miserable. And maybe I guess that stops them from liking lower taxes. I mean, this is not a, this is not part of civilization, at least as, as I recognize it. No, we don't we don't have free speech. And as you're seeing right now with GameStop and um, and, and with AMC theaters, we don't have free markets in America anymore. Mm-hmm. We have acceptable speech and acceptable markets. That's just the way oligarchs like it. Uh, they get to determine what's acceptable and, and, and what's not. In the case back to how this relates back to Kurt, though, what I find fascinating, and I love Kurt. I got to know him well. I still, you know, text or chat with him on a regular basis. What's fascinating, though, is he's still on Twitter. I mean, at this point, man, if Twitter hasn't thrown you off, yeah. that, that seems to be like the first line of unpersoning you in America yes. today as a public figure <laughs> is getting thrown off of Twitter. If you are still able to get past the Twitter censors and algorithms, I, I can't believe that somehow now that this just makes you too deplorable for the Major League Baseball Hall of Fame. <laughs> it's hard to believe. Yes. Um, let me uh, step back to a broader conservative topic here. Uh, we just went through the Trump years. Four, four years of Trump, and he winds up leaving the White House in, in all of the, all of the, all the, the, the flair that you'd expect <laughs> over the last couple of weeks of a Trump administration. But here we are now looking forward. The conservative movement is in a somewhat strange place. I mean, I think we're about to have some sort of civil war, which I expect between establishment types and I don't know who else. Trump certainly mm-hmm. will be part of that, that mm-hmm. faction. Maybe the old Tea Party's part of that. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know who's part of it now. How do you see the conservative movement going forward post-Trump and how big of a part of, of this is that Trump movement? Is there a movement other than just Donald Trump? Um, I think it depends on what Donald Trump decides to do. Uh, I saw a poll today out of Wyoming. I mean, Liz Cheney at this point ought to make sure all her congressional uh, pension paperwork is filed because mm. she's she's going to be accessing it here soon. I mean, she's, <laughs> in a primary. she's down by 30 points to a primary opponent. And when you keep in mind, most primary opponents have such low name IDs. That's why we're I've been involved in primary challenges of establishment Republicans numerous times mm-hmm. across the country. It's so hard to do because the guys that we would want or gals, their name ID is so low. And that's the first threshold. You know, mind share equals market share. You can have all the you can be as great on the issues all you want. People don't know you exist. It doesn't matter. Right. right? And so if Trump chooses to go all in in, in the midterm primary cycle, then, I mean, this will be a short, swift civil war, and you'll see a mass casualty event within the GOP establishment. If he does not, 
uh, and decides to save his powder to determine what he wants to do in 2024, then I think it'll be more of a slow burn, like a tea party. There'll be a few high profile casualties, but overall it's without the addition of Trump's rocket fuel of his name ID and the energy he brings, it's hard to have a mass casualty event of GOP incumbents. Um, is there a policy future here that you can identify? I mean, I think because you know, Trump had so, you know, so much energy, so much passion behind him. You know, he had certain issues he was really passionate about, mm-hmm. but he never, he wasn't, he's not an ideologue. I mean, that's not, you know, it's not Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, is this, is there a, 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 a coherent set of policies that you think define conservatism right now? I think it depends on who you ask. I, I, I think, and every cycle is different. You know, living in Iowa, I'm, I get very involved in the presidential process. Mm-hmm. Heading into the 2016 cycle, it was clear to me that we, if, if we were going to have a non-establishment nominee, it had to be somebody that could merge the emerging liberty faction through the Paul uh, political yep. mm-hmm. uh, operation with the traditional GOP conservative, largely dominated by evangelicals grassroots. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the last two candidates, those candidates were the ones that did it. You know, Ted Cruz got a lot of the younger emerging libertarians that he got them to abandon Rand Paul and come to him. Mm -hmm. And then Donald Trump got the older uh, Paul voters that didn't have a clue what the hell Ron Paul was talking about most of the time. (laughs) They just liked the wild eyed look in his eye. They thought he was going to pull in plugs and they they wanted to drain some swamps. And and Trump got those voters. Mm -hmm. And each of those guys merged that with the traditional grassroots. And they were the last two candidates standing. In this next cycle in 2024, I think you're going to see who is able, first of all, what does Trump decide to do? If he runs, he's going to be the nominee, period. It's over. There's no point to the process. Mm. If he does not run, then um, it's going to be who can merge his populist message with that traditional uh, Republican grassroots. Uh, And so you start looking at candidates who are who's able to do that Um, and whoever I think is able to do that. Nikki Haley will likely be the establishment candidate. Mm-hmm. Now, she's not as establishment as, you know, Mitt Romney and John McCain were. Right. But compared to the rest of the Republican field, she is what we would call establishment today. Mm-hmm. She's going to be the professional classes candidate. If there's going to be a non-professional class nominee, it's going to have to be somebody that can merge Trump's message with the traditional Republican conservative grassroots. Do you see Cotton as this guy? Hawley? I think Hawley has a chance. I think Cotton lacks the the power and charisma to do it. Uh, I think a DeSantis could do it. Uh, I think a Christy Nome could do it. Yep. Mm-hmm. All right. So those are some names. I, I thought Cruz had positioned himself very well with MAGA world, mm-hmm. um, especially taking on the, uh, the, the voter certification fight. But I've seen a lot of them angry at him for kind of throwing Trump under the bus in their view and blaming him for what happened on January mm-hmm. the 6th. So I don't know if he's undercut some of his own progress there or not. Um, but he'll have enormous name ID, which will make him a formidable candidate just on that alone. Mm-hmm. But those are those are the types more than the names of who I think you're probably looking at. You know, it's interesting. You bring up a couple. We got about one more minute here. But Christy Noem and Ron DeSantis are interesting to me. Noem, I, I think it, it, I really like her. I mean, she's she's really smart. She's been very liberty minded throughout mm-hmm. all of this this past year. Um, but, you know, she's from, you know, she's from North South Dakota, South Dakota. Yeah. one of the Dakotas, yeah. South Dakota. And, you know, she's Which makes the point. I think you're about. To uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Ron DeSantis is running like a big state with a big economy, the most expensive uh, swing state in the country, a swing state yeah. uh, you know, that's on the line every single time. And he's taken a lot of the same positions, had a really had really good results when you compare it to Cuomo and, and Gavin Newsom and even other red, red states. I mean, his record to me might be the most impressive in this entire 
situation with COVID and everything else, and he gets no buzz at all. I don't, I don't disagree with you, but I think it's also because he's not making any presidential overtures at all. Right. His entire focus is on that reelect in 2022, and let's face it, if he doesn't win it, he's not a presidential candidate. Yeah. But everything you just said is right on the money. And, and I think he's got a powerful pitch to make, which is I've done this stuff. All these other people have talked about it and that have only talked about. And I did it in the most uh, one of the biggest swing states in the country. And not only that, think about this. If you nominate a Ron DeSantis, imagine saving one hundred million dollars, not having to spend to win Florida, that you could then reinvest in a Virginia or in Arizona states that until the Obama years were solidly Republican to try to win them back and take Florida off the board. That's a big strategic advantage. Mm. He's got some work to do in 2022. That's a good point, because if he loses that, mm-hmm. he's gone. Uh, Steve Dace, uh, host of Blaze TV's Steve Dace Show. Uh, thanks for coming on the program. Of course, don't forget to miss. Uh, well, you can miss this show whenever you want, but don't miss Steve's show. Steve's show is on Blaze TV as well. BlazeTV.com slash Stu. Promo code is Stu. Uh, 30 bucks off your subscription right now. Back in a second. Hey, cool kids. Thanks for hanging out to the end of the show. Click the like button if you would. By the way, tomorrow I'm going to be on with uh, Steve Dace on his show and Dave Rubin on his show. Make sure to come over and check it out. We will see you tomorrow. Have a good night.